0: like you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and uh, turn with me to John chapter 14. We're continuing in John 14. We'll be this morning in verses 7 through 14. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. Before we read, I would like to pray. And um, i like to pray for Carol Murray this morning. Carol Murray is at Sacred Heart, Host, Sacred Heart Hospital having had a couple of strokes, and so we need to pray for Carol this morning for um, for God's grace, for her, and for Paul, and for healing, and for God's will and for God's glory. So would you join with me as we pray? We come to you, O Father God, as the the God of the universe, knowing the end from the beginning. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent us your son, that we might know you. He has explained you in, in his life on this earth, and we know who you are, and we know what you have done, and we know what you are capable of doing. And so, Father, we, we come to you with that faith this morning, asking that your word would come alive to us to see these truths even more, that we might live for you as we ought, that we might believe in you as we should, that we might work for you uh, in your power, and that we might pray in your name for your will and your glory. And So we pray your help in understanding your word. We pray for uh, Paul and Carol this morning as they are faced with perhaps what is the most difficult challenge of their life so far. Lord, you are gracious and merciful and kind, And we pray that you would be that to Carol today, that there would be healing on her behalf. We together, your church family, pray for that. And we beseech you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that this would bring glory to you, that her illness would be um, that which shines a light on the greatness of Christ. And we know that they would want that as well. We ask, Father, for your healing and that you would use them um, for an opportunity for the gospel with the um, nurses and technicians and and doctors, that they would be a light for Christ. We pray that they would grow ever close to you in godliness through this difficult trial, and that you would use this in their lives, uh, that they might be more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we give them into your hands and pray your will be done. And we pray, Father, for your comfort for them this morning, for you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Would you indeed surround them with the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension? These we pray in Jesus' name, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. All right, with that, I ask you to stand as we're going to read God's Word, John chapter 14. Uh, Verses 7 through 14. These are the words of God, and I ask you to give attention to them as we read them. God's Word. Jesus speaking says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. You know the saying, like father, like son. Um, several years back, I was in Boise visiting one of my sons who lives down there, and we went out to lunch together, and we're at a restaurant, and uh, obviously. And the, um, so the server comes up, and as soon as she approaches, she goes, Whoa! I can sure tell that you are father and son. And uh, have you ever had that happen? Some of you probably have with your mother and daughter and father and son. And I think it's probably, uh, uh, you know, flattering to the father. But I don't know if it is to the son, but, uh, but it usually is. And that's just the way life goes, isn't it? Uh, a son looks like his father, a daughter looks like her mother because we have those genes and, and we bear that image of our parents. And in the same way, Jesus bears the image of his father. But it goes way beyond a father and a son and a mother and a daughter. It goes beyond because um, I am a different person than my son. My wife is a different person than her, than our daughter. In Jesus, in the Father, in the Spirit, they are different persons, but they are one God. This is Trinitarianism. This is what we believe as Christians. It is an important uh, understanding of the Christian faith that the Father and the Son are one. They are one of one essence, not just purpose, one being. And this is what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples uh, in this passage that we uh, we have just read. And so the first thing that we're going to see is that it is important for us and all people to believe in Jesus as he is revealed. Believe in Jesus as he is revealed. How he has revealed himself is essential, and it is essential that we believe that. Not our opinion of who Jesus is, not what we think he might be like, not what some other religion has revealed. Recorded as their doctrine as to who Jesus is. But we must always go to the scriptures and we must believe and accept and, and behold Jesus as he has revealed himself. And that is so very, very important. And the problem is that the disciples still did not fully understand the nature of Jesus Christ. They did not really completely grasp it. They've been with him. He's been teaching them, giving them a little bit at a time, and more and more and more. But they still don't get it. Remember our our um, our context from 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 John chapter 14 and from last week. Jesus is going away. He's telling them in the upper room discourse. He's going away. He's going to the Father, and he says, "In my first, he says, believe in in God." Believe also in me, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. And Jesus says, the words that we looked at last week, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he continues to speak, and he says this in verses 7 and 8. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he continues to speak in the same sentence, If you had known me, you would have known the Father. If you had known me, if you had really known me, Philip, all along, then you would have known the Father. Because Philip, or not Philip, at this point, Thomas, he's still speaking to Thomas. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. I'm going to the Father. If you had known me, you would have known that because you would have known the Father. But, he says, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Just as he said to Thomas a minute ago, you know the way where I'm going. There is all this knowledge, I think, that is latent in the disciples, these things that they know because he's been teaching them. And the Spirit of God is going to dredge them up and teach them further to him, to them. But at this point, he says, you don't understand. But from now on, you are going to know not only me, but you're going to know the Father, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, just show us the Father, and that's, that's good enough for us. Just show us. Have they seen him? God has been standing, God is standing right in front of them right now. And Philip, after all this time, says, well, what do you mean we've seen him? If we've seen him, we'll show him to us. This is... But probably he, he wants a miracle. It's like, it reminds me of uh, Moses in the Old Testament when he said, Lord, show me your glory. He wanted to see the glory of God. And Jesus is saying that they had not truly, fully known him. If they had, they would have known the Father as well. And from now on, they are going to know and see him. And right on cue, Philip says, well, show us the Father. He wants some kind of theophany, an expression of God. Uh, so far, by the way, we have seen Peter raise questions. We've seen Thomas raise questions. Now we have Philip. And next we're going to see Judas, who not Iscariot. That's how he's re- described in the Bible. Judas, not Iscariot. How, this is the other Judas. How would you like to have that name? Judas, not Iscariot. Um, so they're continuing to struggle to understand what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is the greatest display of God in John 1.18 the word became flesh among us and we beheld his glory. And right before Philip and all the disciples is the glory of God. God standing incarnate in human flesh. There is no greater visible manifestation of God. Yes, Mount Sinai. Yes, um, uh, the pillar of fire. and cloud. Those are great manifestations of God. This is the greatest one. Jesus is the greatest manifestation of God, and Philip doesn't understand it. You know, you'll run up across people today, and maybe you have, uh, I have many times, who have said, if God would just show himself to me, then I would believe. Have you ever had somebody say that? Or maybe you have said that before you became a Christian. If God would just show himself to me, then I would believe. What do you do with that? What do you do with someone who says that to you? All you can do is point them back to Jesus. Because Jesus is the greatest manifestation of God. Point them back to Jesus, the word of God, the words of Jesus, the the things that Jesus has done, the very gospel message. Don't just say, well, I can't use the Bible or I can't witness any further until they get this thing squared away. No, let God reveal himself to them as he wills in his time but if someone makes that statement you need to point them back to the the ultimate revelation of god is not something that they might see but it is the person of jesus christ you're never going to be able to satisfy someone like that nothing will satisfy them and god is not going to give them an his own personal their own personal theophany like a you know taking up into, up into heaven or something like that. It's not going to happen. But Jesus has appeared that they might know him. Always keep the issue, what it needs to be, the person of Jesus Christ, and he is the greatest manifestation, representation of God the Father. And so Jesus goes on then to explain to his disciples that to see him is to see the Father. He says in verse 9, Jesus says to Philip, A bit exasperated, you can tell by his words. Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? These last three years we've been together, you've heard me speak. You've seen me do miracles. You've seen me raise someone from the dead. You've heard me say this stuff over and over again. I and the Father are one. I sent from the Father. He has taught these things over and over and over again. This is not new material, Philip. We're going over old ground here. And I don't know whether uh, Jesus is exasperated or whether he's just pulling him along like he is all the disciples to just slowly uh, unveil to them these truths that they need to know. So he says, you've been with me this long. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show me the Father? If you see the Father, you see the Son. If you see the Son, you see the Father. He has said this all along. These are not new things. And once again, he is claiming deity. He is claiming that he is God. Because if he's saying, look, if you see me, you see the Father. Notice he doesn't say, I am the Father. But he says, you see the Father in him. Verse ten, the Son is in the Father and the Father is in Him. He said, "Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you not believe this, Philip? He's taught it before, but he's getting deeper and deeper into this concept of the the, the joined nature of Christ and the Father and and the the Godhead, that that God is one." Uh, One God existing in three persons and they all share the same essence. They are one. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And what he gives for the proof of that is this. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the, the Father abiding, living in me, does his works. He calls on two proofs, the words and the works, his words and his works. All the time that he has been with him, there have been two things that that are the testimony, the words of Jesus Christ and the works of Jesus Christ. And what are the purpose of the works? These things were written so that you may believe these works, these signs, these wonders, these miracles. And those were proof that his words were true. They were authenticating miracles that he was indeed one with the Father. And he has said this over and over again. Um, uh, You know, all the I am statements. Um, When he said, before Abraham was, I am, and they wanted to stone him. When he said, I and the Father are one, and they wanted to stone him. And here he is saying, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And the proof of that is... The words that I've spoken to you and the works that I've done, they bear witness that God is in me. It's obvious that God is in him. So all those teachings and all those miracles that he had performed and all that Philip had witnessed should have been enough for Philip to understand at this time that, yes, the true nature of Christ is deity. He is God. And so... He began this whole section, um, believe in God, believe also in me. If you believe in the Son, you believe in the Father. If If you know the Son, you know the Father. If you see the Son, you see the Father. You cannot separate them in any way. They are connected. They are one. They are one God, and they cannot be separated. But again, notice that he does not say, I am the Father, and the Father is me. They are separate. Um, Let me show to you, you've seen this before, the the Trinitarian shield. Um, And all illustrations break down when we try to explain uh, the Trinity. And and by the way, give the disciples some slack at this point. How many of you fully understand the Trinity? So we need to be patient with these guys and we need to understand that uh, he has taught them these things, but they're struggling to understand they don't have the Holy Spirit. They have the Old Testament. They're, they're, in the Old Testament, there is the, the idea of plurality in the Godhead, but, but not a son who is God or uh, probably more the deity of the Holy Spirit is found in the Old Testament. But this is new to them. This is, this is groundbreaking. This is, uh, this is sensational stuff. This is, this is hard for them to grasp. And so this this triangle represents God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Father is not the Son. They're separate, separate people, separate persons. The Father is not the Son, and Jesus does not claim that. He says the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. So the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, nor is the Holy Spirit the Son. They're three individual beings in one God, one ontological being. They share the same essence. And and he is going to, in in coming weeks, we're going to see he's going to send the Holy Spirit, which completes the the Trinity for us and the understanding, but... um, uh, theologians call this mutual indwelling because Jesus said, I am in the father and the father is in me. It's an odd statement. We haven't seen this in John yet. But theologians call this mutual indwelling because they are so inseparable in essence and in their nature that they are in one another. Mutual co is another word that they use. That They are co-inherent at one time. They share the same essence, this unity of being. And I know it blows our minds, and it must have blown Philip's mind, and it must have blown the rest of the disciples' minds to understand, what do you mean you're in the Father and the Father is in you? You're standing right in front of us. And Jesus says, you just need to believe this. And they will get greater understanding when the Holy Spirit comes, and their faith will be full-orbed at that time. But we are we are called to believe the same thing that this is that these are are difficult things, but they are important things. This is true of all members of the Godhead: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all equal. They are all one. Do you know that um, the early church councils that were formed: Nicaea in 325 A.D., Constantinople in 381, uh, Ephesus in 431. Chalcedon in 451. You know what they were all about? The true nature of Christ. Because everybody gets it wrong. Because every cult gets it wrong. Because the enemy has always sowed seeds of false doctrine about who Jesus is. We have to know and have to believe who Jesus is. And this distinction between Father and Son and Spirit is held, but at the same time they are one of one essence. Not just Purpose. But they have one essence. At the same time, we see the preeminence of the Father, don't we? Because in the Godhead, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who, who is sent by, by the Son, and the, and the Son is the one who is spent by the, sent by the Father. And the Father uh, submits, the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Son. So in the Trinity, in the Godhead, there, is, uh, there are lines of accountability and authority. Even though they are one. So here's the lesson for us it is essential to get right the nature of God. Because if you get it wrong, it's not God, right? It's an opinion, it's an idea that someone has. You see how important theology is. We have to get, right? Because Jesus is castigating them for not understanding that he is in the Father and the Father is in him and that they are one. And he says, you've got to believe this. You must believe this. When you talk to your your Mormon friends, for instance, um, they're wonderful people, but you have to recognize that we have honest differences. And this is the place you, you can't get past this. You can't get past who God is. You can't get past who Jesus is. There's no ta- use talking about Joseph Smith and all that other stuff because you can't get past this is this is where you start. Who is God and who is Jesus Christ? And when you talk to someone like that or from another religion or maybe someone who just believes that Jesus was a prophet or a, a nice man or just uh, you know whatever. And, they, and you get talking with them and they might say, well, I guess we're just saying the same, essentially we're saying the same thing. No. Don't ever, don't ever give in to that if someone says, I guess we're just essentially saying the same thing. No, you're not saying the same essential thing, which is who God is. He is one. He exists in three persons. And Jesus is that ultimate recognition and, and representation of the Father, So we must be theologically accurate in our belief in in the nature of God. If you get it wrong, you get eternity wrong. Really, you do. And so to understand the nature of God is is so important. That's why Jesus is making such a big deal of it here. We must believe in God as he has revealed himself and not our opinion and not our idea or not some book that we read that has a new idea, Jesus is God. He is in the Father. The Father is in him. They are mutually indwelling one another, and that's who they are. So it's essential to believe that. It has been the, um, the, the teachings of Christ, the Christian church since the first century, and we are the standard bearers of that truth. But Jesus goes on in talking to his disciples, The second thing that I want you to see in verses 11 and 12 is that we should work for Jesus by faith in his work. He's left us to do work on this earth. He's left us to continue on to take the baton of the gospel, to take the baton of all the things that he taught and all the things that he did, and it is our responsibility to keep on going until he returns. But we we do this based upon his finished work for us. I know that a lot of Christians don't want to talk about good works because that's, because that's, that's legalism. No, it's not. We, for by grace you've been saved through faith and then not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are saved for the purpose of works and to continue the work of the gospel. And so Jesus says in verse 11, Believe me, That I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He continues on this idea. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Believe my words. Believe my works. But I want you to notice here, here in the the heart of the passage, that we have these two imperatives. I've talked to you about that before. A a Greek imperative is the command mode. You must do this. And he says it twice. Believe. Believe me. Believe the works. When he says believe me, he doesn't say believe in me. It's like this. Hey, believe what I'm telling you when when you're talking to someone. Believe what I'm saying. What I'm telling you is true. And that's what he's saying. Believe me. Believe my words that they are true. Otherwise, believe the works that I've done also. You've seen it all, Philip, and all you guys. You've seen the water turned into wine. You've seen the the dead raised and the, the sick healed. And you've seen all this. Believe my words and believe. But he says, you have to believe. This is an imperative. Believe his words that he and the Father are united. That's what he's asking them to believe, isn't it? Believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Based on what? What I'm telling you and what I've done. Believe in the words and believe in the works that he and the Father are united. And of course that brings us Full circle, once again, to 14.1, believe in God, believe also in me. So throughout the Gospels, uh, the works that Jesus did were, were mainly miracles that he's talking about. And the purpose of those were that we would believe in him. But these two imperatives are to believe in his essence. Believe in who. He has revealed himself to be in the Father, Father in him. You see me, you see the Father. I and the Father are one. Get it straight. He is God. And then he says, after these two imperatives, the result of this, the result of believing in Jesus as he truly is, based on his words and his works, is this, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So those who believe in him and they've accepted his essence, that he, the reality of who he is is God, they will do the works that he has done. And he's talking to his disciples primarily. It's going to be them. And then he goes on. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. So the result is those who believe will be able to do works that Christ did and even greater works than Christ did what are these works? The works that uh, he did that were uh, miraculous and stupendous and spectacular were sensational miracles. But he says, you will be able to do greater than these. Now, obviously, he couldn't mean greater in kind um, because he rose Lazarus from the dead and the apostles would do the same thing. They would raise people from the dead too. So he's not talking about you're going to do more, greater things. You can't do anything greater than raising someone from the dead. So greater probably means greater in, in scope, in extent, for one thing. Because when Jesus was on this earth, he was limited by his human body. By the way, he still has a human body. That's That's one of the things that the that the the councils uh, uh, that they nailed down, that Jesus took on, on uh, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and took it on forever. He will have that human body forever. But in the sense that he was on this earth, he was limited in time and space to one location at a time, When he goes away, the multiplication of the apostles working all the works that he did, and then the the gospel spreading throughout all of the world, throughout all of the church history, you see that these works are greater and greater and greater to extent. The reason, though, that we have to pay very close attention to this in verse 12, he says, because I go to the Father. The reason believers will be able to do greater works is because Jesus goes to the Father. They're greater because he's gone. They're greater because he's not here. They're greater because we have been redeemed. Human beings are redeemed. They're greater because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. They're greater because now God working through us in the form of the Holy Spirit is doing something that was never done ever in all of history God living in human beings in the New Covenant times, working through people, working his works. That is why they are greater. That has never been done. The redeemed of God, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Working throughout all all of, of um, church history. So people who, uh, oftentimes people take this and say, well, greater works in Jesus, we'll be able to do that too. And so they think we should be able to go out and raise people from the dead and we should be able to heal people. Why isn't that happening? Because that's not what it means. That's why it's not happening. But isn't it a miracle that God would work through us? He would go and he would be he would go to the father, the plan of redemption. He's he suffers. He suffers. He dies, he's buried, he's raised from the dead, and he's, he's exalted in heaven with the Father, and now from heaven he's working in us through the power of his Holy Spirit, having brought us back to life from the dead spiritually. That is the greater thing that he is doing through human beings and his people now. So some lessons. The words and works of Jesus are sufficient for salvation. You don't need anything more. You don't need a, um, a God to show you some special miracle. You just need to believe. It's sufficient. All that he has said. Uh, there's so much to read here. The, the, the word, the words of Jesus Christ in all four Gospels and all that uh, that his apostles wrote and all that came before him. It is a sufficient witness that Jesus came and lived and died and it's sufficient for salvation. Second, our enabling and empowerment for service are based in the finished work of Christ. The very reason that I can preach, the very reason that you can hear and listen, the very reason that you can obey, the very reason that we can love one another, the very reason we can share our faith is because we have been enabled and empowered for these things because Christ went back to the Father. He had to fulfill His work before we would have that empowerment and that enabling that we truly have now that He is working through us. Because without Christ's resurrection and without Christ's return to the Father, we are unforgiven and powerless. It's where where we are without Him. So, third lesson is this. Our work for Christ is his work through us. Our work for Christ is his work through us. That, Therefore, we are to work for Jesus by faith in his work. Um, it, it's easy, I know, I do it and you do it too. We just kind of get off doing our own thing, even serving the Lord and we do it in our own strength and we kind of forget to, to include God sometimes, don't we? And sometimes at the very end, we invite him to be part of it. You know, hey, oh, by the way, God, would you be part of what we're doing here? You know, from start to finish, he wants to empower us and enable us. And he wants us to be cognizant of this indwelling Holy Spirit who is God in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, working through us those great things. The greatest thing is leading another person to Christ, of course. So our work for Christ is always his work through us, and we should never, ever forget that because that is the life of faith. So he wants us to know the essence and to believe in the essence of who he is, and therefore on the basis of that and all he's done to work for him, knowing that he's working through us. And then he has this teaching for us on prayer, which we see this. Pray for God's glory in the name of Jesus. Pretty simple. But that's what he says in the next two verses. We are to pray for God's glory. And those prayers are to be in the name of Jesus. Now look with me at verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Think a minute about what we've been talking about. These verses are not standalone verses on prayer. And I think most people, even good Christians, don't look at the context. Um, when people come to these verses, they, we, we tend to wrench them out of their context. And, and, uh, but, but we need to think about what we've been discussing here. We've been talking about the nature of Jesus Christ. He is in the Father. The Father is in Him. He's going away, and He's going to work through us. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. It's not totally un- unrelated. He's telling them that when I go away, you're still, I'm still going to be available to work through you. I who am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and now I live in you in the Holy Spirit. So it's important to understand the true nature of Jesus. It's important to understand that, and believe in him that he will do these great works through us. But obviously, the prayers have to do with these works, don't they, in context? He will work, do greater works, and whatever you ask, I will do. He will do greater works, and whatever I ask, I will do. He's telling them that this is is related to our working. So all of the work that we do based in the work of Christ is also to be accompanied by prayer. So obviously, these prayers have something to do with the works. The greater works are to be prayers that we ask God to do greater works through us. And since he has gone to the Father, they're going to need assistance. They're going to need help. And he's assuring them and telling you, I'm going away to the Father, but I'm just going to be a phone call away, if you will. I'll be right there. All you got to do is ask, and I will be there. And I will help you with whatever you you need to do to complete the work that I've given you to do. But still we have some general principles about prayer that we should lay out here. And they are these. Prayer is asking. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it so that the Father will be glorified through the Son. Prayer is asking. This assumes that you have needs. And this assumes that you don't have the resources to meet those needs. This assumes that you need direction, and it assumes that you don't know the direction. It assumes humility, that we humble ourselves to ask God to show us things and to do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That's what prayer is, asking God to do those things that we cannot do for ourselves. We don't have the answers. And when we come to God in prayer, we're saying, I don't have the answer. Will you give me the answer? It's a recognition that he is God and we are not. And so we come to him asking. He says, if you ask anything in my name. Boy, that's a loaded, loaded concept. The name of Jesus. The name is all that he is. It's, I think it is another way of saying praying his will, really. But praying the name of Jesus means all that he is, all, his authority, his sovereignty. He is the sovereign Lord, which includes his deity, which he's been talking about. All that he is, all that he represents, he is one with the Father. And when we come to God in prayer, we, we should have this understanding of who Jesus is. It goes back to the very beginning. We must believe in Jesus as he has revealed himself, so that when we come to him in prayer, we're not just have some concept that's ethereal of some person that we're talking to that we're not sure who it is. We know it's Jesus. And we know everything about his name and how important it is. Everything that he, that he, that, that, that he represents. And so to ask in the name of Jesus is not magic. Yes, you can pray a prayer just a, a, in the middle of a conversation, God, give me strength. And and then you go back and say, well, I should have said, Father, God, give me strength. And I should have said, in Jesus' name. So I guess he didn't hear me. No. These are not magic formulas. This is just coming to him, recognizing who he is. Praying in his name. His name is above all names. And since he is the Lord, we are asking in submission to him. But we are also recognizing that he is able, right, to do What we are asking him. If we come to him without faith and saying, Lord, I pray that you would save my dad, but I don't really believe you will. How often do you pray prayers like that? I mean, you don't say that under your breath, but do you really, are you just saying words? Or do you really believe that he is able to do what you ask him to do? So praying in his name is his full understanding of all that he has done, his work of redemption. It's not based on what I've done or what you've done. So I don't come to God and say, hey, I've been a pretty good boy this week. Do you think you can throw a few things my way? It doesn't work that way. But I would be remiss to not mention that sin short circuits prayer, doesn't it? If we're in sin and we're in rebellion and we ask God to do something, he might just say, no, I'm going to let you this run its course until you come back to my name and you come in full submission, in repentance. And he will forgive you, yes, but sin short-circuits prayer, and so we need to make sure that we understand that. Pray for whatever glorifies him. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. This is, this is essential. This is the kicker. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Not that you're glorified, but he's glorified. So the Father is glorified in the Son when we ask in his name. And the glory of God is always the kicker. And his glory is his will. Anything, by the way, when he says if you ask anything... I will do it so that the Father will be glorified in the Son. Anything doesn't mean anything that you want. And people take this passage and this verse and say, See, I can pray for anything, and God wants to give me anything that I want. A new car, um, healing, a new job, whatever it may be. That's not what he's saying. Anything that glorifies the Father in submission to the Son. Anything that glorifies Him, and that is in His will. And this is consistent with this passage, that the glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. This also bolsters Jesus' point that the Father and the Son are co-equal. Because He says, if you ask me, notice that in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Generally, prayer, as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, he said, Pray this way, our Father. We are taught to address the Father in prayer, and we are to pray in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean you can't pray to Jesus, but the, the, the just the, the general uh, order of prayers is that we address the Father and we pray in Jesus' name. What Jesus is saying here by saying if you ask any if you ask me, he is reiterating what he's been saying in this whole passage. If you're asked, if you're if you're praying to me, you're praying to the Father. If you believe in me, you believe in the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. If you know me, you know the Father and prayer is part of that. It's just another way of saying, I cannot be separated from my father even in prayer. But his will is his glory. and the will of God is always the glory of God. But we must not think that we have a blank check. To just ask for anything, the standard of that check being answered is God's glory and his will. So some lessons. As you grow in maturity and godliness and holiness in years, you will want and you will pray for what God wants. When you're younger, you want a lot of things and you want different stuff. When you get older and you're wiser and more godly, you are more apt to say, whatever it takes, God, for your will to be done. Whatever it takes, God, for your glory, I'm okay with that. But you have to grow in godliness to get to that point, and you have to be weaned from um, selfishness and the things of this world because, yes, we want God to do things for us, but it's better that his will be done. Second of all, the name of Jesus entails all that he is, all he has done, all he will do, and all he is able to do. We pray in his name. It includes, yes, even much more than that, but it includes that. It is about him. It is about the essence and the nature of Christ. Third, and you've heard me say this before, but... If you pray God's word, you are praying God's will. And I urge you, if you have a hard time learning to pray, just open up the psalm sometime. Just open it up and start praying it back to God. Pray the scriptures. Learn to pray the scriptures back to God. To Open it up, and when you see things, just pray God's word, because you know that's God's will. It may not be God's will for healing. It may not be God's will for a new job. It may not be God's will for many things that we ask, but one thing we can be certain of is that when we pray God's word, we are praying God's will, and I encourage you to that. So in conclusion this morning, um, there are some things that you should include in your prayer. Gratitude, always be grateful to God. Godliness, whenever you're praying for someone who's in, in dire straits and maybe they need a job, pray for their job, but pray that God would, would grow them in Christ. Grow them in Godliness. Pray for the gospel. Even if someone is is ill or in the hospital or someone is lost in some way, pray for an opportunity for the gospel because we know that that is always God's will. And always pray for God's glory. God's glory is always His will. And even if you don't know what to pray for, just pray that. And finally, whatever we ask of God, he can do far more, far more. So we close with Paul's benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.